This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. In this episode, I will be speaking with Philip C. Shackelford about his book, Rise of the Mavericks, the U.S. Air Force Security Service and the Cold War, published by the U.S. Naval Institute Press in 2023. Philip Shackelford is currently serving as the library director at South Arkansas Community College in El Dorado, Arkansas. He is the past president of the Arkansas Library Association and is committed to supporting the Arkansas library community in a variety of other capacities. As a military historian, Philip Shackelford brings a unique focus on organizational culture and development to the history of communications, intelligence, national security, and the U.S. Air Force. Philip Shackelford, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we usually like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what got you interested in writing this book? What's the backstory behind it? Absolutely. Well, first of all, like, like I said, thank you very much for for having me on the show. I uh, appreciate it every, uh, very much, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Uh, but as you mentioned, yeah, my name is Philip Shackelford. I'm the library director at uh, South Arkansas College. I'm a mil- military historian focused on uh, the U.S. Air Force and communications intelligence and national security um, during the Cold War. Um, first became interested in kind of researching and writing about these topics uh, during undergrad. So it's, I've been with it for a while. Uh, but but that interest was initially born of, of hearing my grandfather's stories growing up. My grandfather served um, in the U.S. Air Force Security Service during the early 1950s. Um, and his stories, these kind of brief little anecdotes that he would share with with my brother and I as we were growing up, uh, just kind of served as my entry point to the topic, it, it, just a, an introduction to the fact that this command even existed in the first place. Um, and obviously, you know, he never shared anything that would be, you know, indicate how just how sensitive an organization the security service really was. Um, certainly not to, you know, a couple of kids who did not yet have the context for, for everything that he was talking about. But um, like I said, the, the journey kind of continued for me in undergrad as you're going through the history program. Um, you know, historical methods, you're looking forward to the senior seminar, you're starting to kind of cast about for topics that you can uh, write about. And and I decided, you know, maybe I'll take a look at the security service and see what can be done uh, with that as a, as a topic and was was immediately uh, surprised and kind of flabbergasted at just how little information was out there. Of course, come to find out there's a really good reason for that. It was an intelligence agency, um, much still remains to be declassified. Um, but uh, I, uh, I was hooked. I mentioned it to a professor I was working with at the time uh, in a different department um, as a research research assistant and we you know we started poking around doing a little bit of of research and and things like that and I never will forget he you know one day he we're we're doing some of this and he looks up and and very bluntly he just says your grandfather was a spy and even if you started to get a hint you know where the research might take you down the road to have somebody put it to you like that I mean you don't forget it 
And uh, so, like I said, long story short, I was hooked and ended up staying with the topic and uh, undergrad, stuck with it through grad school. Um, and, you know, come to find out years later, the fact that my grandfather even ended up in the Air Force to begin with was almost an accident. Um, he had, uh, uh, you know, graduated uh, high school in the spring of 1952, had little idea uh, what he wanted to do, but he kind of saw the military as a way to fund his post-secondary education. And uh, so uh, without telling anyone, uh, he traveled to the nearest military recruiting station which is over 30 miles away, and with the intention of signing up for the U.S. Marines. Um, but the Marine Corps recruiter wasn't in the office that day. And so he kind of decided on the Air Force as a second choice, and of course, made a decision that would, would pave the next four years of his life and, of course, form uh, lasting memories that remain vivid today. So um, absolutely fascinating journey there. Now, what kind of sources were you able to uh, consult for this? Because like, you just mentioned it's very secret. It was very secretive. There was not a lot of information available. Has kind of the archives been come more available over the years now? Well, yeah. So in large part, I mean, the sources that are available for for a study like this are, are declassified military and other government uh, documents, reports, memos, official histories, things like that. And and given the nature of what has been declassified so far, um, the sources kind of support more of an organizational history as opposed to an operational history. Um, like I said, much remains classified, um, and the things that have been declassified tend to be scattered around the country in various different archives, various different places. And so it's a, it's a matter of kind of weaving together this this tapestry of of sources that that are available. Um, and and using those sources, like I said, they, they kind of uh, illustrate these these larger bureaucratic uh, decisions and kind of the rationales that that supported those. Um, in terms of other uh, kinds of materials, I was able to conduct a few oral history interviews with surviving members of the security service, of course, uh, including my grandfather. And these really serve uh, to kind of personalize the narrative, right, to add those that day in the life aspect um, of, of what it was like to, to serve in this command, which really, I think, helps to move the narrative along, kind of balance the uh, the bureaucratic kind of the the 30,000 foot picture uh, with some of what it actually meant to to uh, these folks on the ground. So uh, kind of taking those two uh, kinds of materials together in order to to paint a, a more complete picture, hopefully, uh, is is kind of what was needed to to do this. And I think as, as we see uh, more and more things continue to be classified, hopefully that that will allow us to to write a more uh, complete uh, history, uh, explore the story in a more complete way of the Air Force Security Service, but not only the Security Service, also the the Army Security Agency, the Naval Security Group, who um, at, at this point in time have not had um, a dedicated history kind of exploring those organizations. So it's a it's a fascinating and exciting time to be an intelligence historian. Yes, it is, especially with some of the uh, archives and all that uh, being declassified. And of course, we're moving further and further away from when the Cold War ended, when that would have still been the case. Unfortunately for me, I usually specialize on Russian and Soviet espionage, so those uh, sources are a little still hard to get for more reason than one. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, your... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, my next question was, can you just briefly explain like what the security service uh, was for our listeners who never have heard of this Uh this agency or what the Air Force did during the early Cold War? 
Yeah, so so just to give folks kind of a broad overview, um, the the U.S. Air Force Security Service was a uh, communications intelligence, a communications security agency uh, created by the Air Force in 1948, and its its mission was to to gather communications intelligence that would provide uh, valuable information the Air Force needed to understand, uh, to target, and to prevail over opposing forces during the Cold War, um, as well as to protect the security of internal Air Force communications. Um, the mission did fluctuate um, as the Cold War progressed uh, to include electronic warfare, electronic intelligence, um, and the, the command was actually renamed the Electronic Security Command in 1979 to kind of reflect those uh, changes to the to the priorities. But um, the, the the history, that, especially the early history, is not only fascinating, but it's also this incredible glimpse into the inner workings of American national security and intelligence gathering um, during the during the Cold War. Um, the Air Force had been obliged to to wait for a number of years as part of the U.S. Army uh, before air leaders could really pursue service autonomy. Um, and they knew that intelligence, especially in this new and, and uncertain Cold War environment, uh, would be absolutely critical. And, and these, these two ideas were, were very clearly linked together. Um, there's this great quote from, from General George McDonald, who um, in 1947, he'll become the first director of Air Force Intelligence. But back in 1945, the war's still going on. He's serving uh, as director of intelligence for um, the U.S. Uh, Strategic Air Forces in Europe at the time. I mean, he writes this memo where he says, it seems to me that when a service gives away dominion over its intelligence, it has, in fact, uh, given up its independence. So as the United States emerged from World War II and started making this transition to the Cold War, these Air Force leaders knew what they were doing from, from the get-go. Um, they immediately set about the task of establishing an effective communications intelligence organization that, again, would provide the information they needed, but at the same time, help the Air Force kind of overcome its dependence um, on the Army. Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons we've hardly ever heard about this command is, again, as we've been discussing, many of their records obviously are, are still um, classified, and uh, that pertains to not only the operational and the activities, but also the relationships the Security Service had with um, other government agencies. But then another reason is that other intelligence organizations, such as the CIA, the NSA, um, attract a lot more attention um, and are more explored in the literature. Um, but the security service is important, and it provides this useful lens, I think, to, to kind of look at the Air Force at large um, and the transformative developments that really characterize this transition from World War II um, into the Cold War. Yeah, it's one interesting thing about the book and how you weaved everything together is also this is almost as much uh, particularly the first few chapters it's as just as much about how the air force became its own independent branch as much as how did it develop its own intelligence service and you you're the quote that you just gave uh really sums it up now uh you mentioned your grandfather thomas shackleford uh what uh, what uh, did he do in the security service uh how much did he tell you or are you able to talk about <laughs> yeah so i'll get in trouble <laughs> <laughs> no it's an interesting question because i mean he's he, like i said he has shared a little bit i think there's a lot more that he probably could share but it, but he hasn't at this point but uh uh yeah he was a, a crypto teletype operator kind of responsible for taking uh the intercepted data uh collected by all of the intercept operators um and then sending that information back to various headquarters uh in the states and elsewhere uh for processing and um analysis 
Um, after separating from the service, he became uh, an electrical engineer, um, ended up as director of a power company uh, in our area. And I think, you know, it would be a really interesting area for further research to kind of look into the kinds of careers that security service personnel pursued um, after their time in the command um, to explore whether or not their their training, their experience as part of the security service had any impact on their um, civilian uh, careers thereafter. Um, I think that would be interesting to learn. That is actually an interesting thing that kind of reminds me, going back to my specialty, how even a lot of members of the Stasi, the German secret police, their intelligence agency, after you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and then after, you know, the end of East Germany, a lot of them, you know, because they couldn't find employment in intelligence because of their background, but a lot of them, they became like private detectives and that sort of thing. So it's like, well, hey, I just, I got the training, I got the equipment. So yeah, just leverage the skills you have. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of interesting uh, that connection between, you know, intelligence and even like private investigator or even regular uh, detective work uh, you even see it a little bit in the world of fiction too but that's a whole another topic <laughs> that's another podcast right yeah 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 well uh <laughs> well yeah one of my previous interviews i did actually discuss that like how spy fiction in 19th century france you know uh kind of influenced uh, the actual spy agencies of that time uh, deborah ba- deborah bauer that was a really good uh interview um so yeah we talked about how your book is almost also about how the air force came about as an independent branch of the united states military and the background to that is both world war one and world war two so what was the impact of those two wars on the united states military that in some ways kind of created the need for the security service yeah so the the, the way i would describe world war one is it's really a turning point for um, American intelligence kind of writ large. Um, It's a moment in time when technological advances and attitudes towards intelligence activities are kind of coming together in a way that sets up how the United States will approach intelligence going forward. Um, And there's a number of scholars who've who've written on this and and continue to put out really good scholarship on this. And um, I'll just point to uh, James Gilbert, um, Elizabeth Rahali Smoot um, and Mark Stout. I mean, I think your your listeners should definitely pick up copies of their works to kind of learn more about how the First World War sets the stage for um, the the growth and the development of of American military intelligence. But so for its part, I mean, World War II then um, has been called a quote SIGINT war, uh, sig- SIGINT for signals intelligence, which um, is a term that's coined by the now famous uh, cryptologist William Friedman. Um, and it's an apt description because when it came to signals intelligence, communications intelligence, the Allies transformed the world of espionage and kind of laid the technological and the philosophical foundation for uh, cryptologic work that remains uh, in large part to this day. Um, much of the Allied success in this area was built on progress made by British codebreakers initially, um, who succeeded in cracking German uh, Enigma traffic. Um, that program, and of course, the information it provided were known by the codename Ultra. Um, and Ultra Intelligence provided much needed insight for the Allies in situations that obviously helped achieve important victories. Um, Where the United States, I think, in particular had some challenges was in the organization and the coordination of its intelligence activities, Um, especially in the early years leading up to World War II and then the early years of the war. Um, Army and Navy intelligence units did not cooperate well with each other and, in fact, behaved as rivals towards each other, um, which made, obviously, for problematic combination of overlap, duplication, squabbles over jurisdiction, all of these things. 
Following World War II, then, American military and government officials knew that this level of dysfunction, for lack of a better word, um, could not be allowed to continue. Um, and so they spent a lot of time after the war, kind of in the, the, the late 1940s, um, working and arguing over how the United States intelligence apparatus should be organized. Um, and that, of course, included uh, communications intelligence. Now, that rivalry you just mentioned between the Army and the Navy, is that kind of why the Air Force needed its own independent uh, intelligence and independent of the Army and the Navy? Yeah, yeah. So, that's a, you know, going back to the, the quote from, from General George McDonald, um, have to remember that the Army Air Forces, the Army Air Corps before that, well back into the interwar period, um, had been extremely interested in pursuing service autonomy. And really only World War II itself kind of delays this, this push uh, for, for greater independence. Um, add to that the fact that Air Force leaders were never really satisfied uh, by the intelligence support they received from um, Army's military intelligence. Um, uh, air intelligence was often controlled by you know, military intelligence organizations and personnel that had very little understanding of the kind of unique needs and perspectives and uh, priorities that Air Force leaders had. And so these these ideas, again, are, are really cl clearly linked to Air Force independence and the need for, for air intelligence. Um, and like I said, these, these Air Force leaders kind of emerged from this experience uh, in World War II with a very clear um, idea of what they feel needs to happen. And, and they start setting, laying the groundwork uh, for uh, setting up a, an independent kind of autonomous uh, communications intelligence organization. Um, this is a time when the Air Force is on its way up, right? Building on what air leaders kind of see as uh, the decisive demonstration of capability and value during World War II, uh, making their case, continuing to make their case for service independence. Um, and it would be in that environment, you can see how it'd be fairly difficult and counterintuitive really for the Air Force to continue relying um, on another service for um, intelligence, especially again, as, as we've, we've mentioned, uh, the Air Force and air, air leaders have never really been fully satisfied with uh, the support they received from, from military intelligence. And so the, the security service then becomes a key piece of overcoming uh, that dependence. Um, and it's also this incredible little microcosm of the kind of fierce independence that characterizes the, the Air Force at large more broadly. You know, we are the Air Force. We're something different than the Army. Uh, we have a different capability and mission and something different that we offer to uh, national defense. And so air leaders are very intent on um, protecting the autonomy of this intelligence capability, um, making sure that it can serve Air Force needs and Air Force priorities uh, first, if not uh, exclusively. Um, Hap Arnold, uh, just an as, an, as an example, was was one of the key figures, kind of grossly dissatisfied with um, intelligence support that the army, that the Air Force received uh, from the army during World War II, um, and he he knew that going forward something something had to change. Um, and just as an example, I mean, Arnold himself was never officially informed about Ultra, um, but he found out on his own through his own kind of personal network. Um, and uh, so, so that's just an example of kind of the dysfunction that that existed between all of the different commands and, and services um, during the war when it came to to intelligence. Uh, General Hoyt Vandenberg is another person I would point to. Kind of, he he becomes uh, vice chief and eventually chief of staff of the Air Force, um, and had also been in close contact with communications intelligence during the war. Really impressed with how the British system worked, and and was very interested in and in seeing what could be done to set up the Air Force uh, going forward um, after the war. In 1949, he would play a key role in kind of preserving uh, security service um, autonomy, um, and that step was was necessary because of these ongoing and often very contentious debates 
um, concerning the proposed consolidation of military communications intelligence agencies into a single joint uh, organization. The, the, Arm, the, the Air Force and the Navy had opposed each other in the military unification debates after the war. Uh, the Navy, by and large, saw very little need for an independent Air Force. Uh, but, but they found themselves in the kind of the unfamiliar position as allies in the struggle against uh, communications intelligence consolidation, um, but for different reasons. The, the Navy opposed the centralization because kind of consolidating command and control um, into a single joint agency would interrupt uh, the decentralized system of command that the Navy uh, really viewed as, as critical to its to its mode of operation. Um, while the Air Force, for its part, as we've seen, kind of viewed uh, this as a matter of survival uh, as an independent service. And so given the importance of communications intelligence to strategic bombing, uh, which was part and parcel of the Air Force's kind of service identity at this point, remaining dependent on other agencies for um, intelligence, um, and or kind of subordinating Air Force um, intelligence capabilities to joint control um, and direction uh, was just an untenable uh, proposal. So ultimately, in a uh, surprise reversal, uh, or at least a surprise to the Navy, uh, the Air Force eventually agreed to support uh, general consolidation uh, of communications intelligence, but only after a compromise proposal was submitted by the Army, which allowed individual service agencies to retain um, at least some uh, autonomous control. And so then the Air Force uh, promptly designates all of its uh, intelligence assets as mobile units, kind of taking advantage of a loophole in, in the proposal and largely escaping the, the sacrifices to joint assignment that, that followed when the, the Armed Forces Security Agency was, was ultimately created. And so this, this single-minded focus, right, this, this preparation and the bureaucratic navigation that kind of made these amenable results uh, possible is the overarching characteristic of kind of the security services rise to uh, prominence in the the post-war cryptologic uh, community. What the the army and various elements of the executive branch saw as territorialism and uh, defiance, um, the Air Force kind of understood as pursuing institutional priorities and safeguarding um, independence, uh, kind of shrewdly maneuvering like the like the Mavericks they were seen to be. Yeah. Now, you talked about how the Air Force was dependent on the Army during World War II, but it was able to do some intelligence on its own a little bit. And you do talk about this in the what type of intelligence were the the Air Force, Air Force in quotation marks, because it wasn't a separate branch at this time, was able to do during the during World War II that kind of sets up the stage for what comes afterwards and what becomes the security service? Yeah, it's a good question. I think so. There's there's a number of different things that the the Army Air Forces get into with regards to intelligence and the number of different um, strategies that they pursue. Um, going into the war, I mean, uh, in the, the 1930s, I think particularly um, the air attache system uh, was was important and, and was kind of um, one of the key pieces of, of intelligence that uh, air, air leaders really relied on, uh, but not necessarily it, it wasn't it didn't provide the kind of information that would have been decisive um, in in military operations, especially in, in something as serious as as World War II. And there's a lot of challenges that go along with the the attache system and, and the kinds of information that they're uh, able to to provide. Um, what ultimately ends up happening is that 
although the the AAF continues to kind of push uh, military intelligence for uh, the kinds of information it needs, continues to kind of have those those interagency um, debates and arguments. Um, Hap Arnold ends up uh, relying a lot on civilian uh, consultants um, when it comes to intelligence and kind of the the especially when it comes to targeting and putting together targeting packages that that can look at specific uh, bases, specific uh, cities and industries and and uh, those kinds of uh, of things in uh, Nazi Germany and, and Japan and and kind of putting that information together. So um, this really sets up the I think the relationship uh, between the the Army Air Forces and um, intelligence itself that we will kind of continue to see um, as World War II kind of comes to a close and as the the Air Force and the United States uh, military and government kind of at large are making this transition from World War II into the Cold War. Um, this really really close relationship between um, the Air Force um, and uh, the the needs it has for intelligence, but also science and technology and, and the close relationship between all of those things um, is uh, a key piece of understanding how all this worked together. Now, moving into the early Cold War, this kind of changes a little bit of the dynamics within the United States military. And in some ways, this creates a little bit of the momentum for an independent uh, U.S. Air Force, and also the need for its own independent intelligence service. You did kind of cover that uh, previously, but how did the early Cold War kind of affect the the Air Force, and you know what role did intelligence play in in that? Yeah, so so at the outset of the Cold War, um, I think building on or, or at least uh, using the experience of World War II as, to, as an example. Um, Air Force leaders really see themselves as the first line of defense uh, when it comes to the Cold War, the Soviet Union, and kind of the strategic questions that that need to be addressed. And so a lot of the philosophy, a lot of the steps and kind of the uh, decisions that are being made have to do with um, the strategic threat and and setting up uh, effective capability that uh, will be able to to respond and, and protect uh, not only the American homeland, but American interests um, in, in the Cold War environment. And um, so that's the that's the philosophy, that's the attitude that the Air Force really enters the, the Cold War um, with. And I think where where that kind of meets the road when it comes to the security service is that the security service itself was also uh, geared toward um, understanding the the strategic threat and, and providing the kinds of information that would be necessary uh, for the Strategic Air Command um, and the Air Force to to prevail um, over the Soviet Union and and uh, over what was was largely seen uh, probable to be a nuclear exchange um, if it got to that point um, and I think so. The, the Air Force at large and the security service specifically are, are entering the Cold War with that mindset. Um, and of course, we'll see that start to change a little bit when it comes to the Korean War. Yeah, we'll get to that uh, soon enough. Now, two main responsibilities of the security service was signals intelligence and communications intelligence. But you explain that those two are not the same thing, although people get them confused. Can you kind of explain the distinction between the two and how the security service performed those operations? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I think the signals intelligence, communications intelligence are used um, interchangeably in a, in a lot of different settings. But the, the way I like to describe it is that communications intelligence is a form of signals intelligence um, in that the actual content of messages being sent by radio signals and other means is intercepted processed, analyzed, and then used to try and understand what a, a given adversary um, is up to. 
signals intelligence more broadly indicates intelligence that is gathered from the use of signals themselves, which can include things like what kind of information is uh, equipment is being used, uh, what locations the signals are being sent from, uh, patterns of transmission, uh, things like that. So, so communications intelligence itself is almost a subset um, or, or a subtype of signals intelligence more broadly. Now, a major figure who is mentioned in your book is Richard P. Uh, Clacco. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. Uh, and who was this? Who was Clacco, and what was his significance to the Air Force and the security service? Yeah, G General Clacco is a fascinating figure, and he does feature very heavily in the early history of the security service particularly. Um, he's a graduate of West Point, uh, class of 1937, um, and after flight training, eventually becomes the uh, commander of pursuit squadrons. Uh, we'd call them fighter squadrons today, uh, first in Puerto Rico and then in England, um, and then is deployed to, to North Africa, where he's actually shot down um, and taken prisoner. Uh, he spends uh, almost two and a half years as a prisoner of war, um, actually held in Stalag Luft III, which is the prison camp made famous by the movie uh, The Great Escape. Um, and is ultimately released, transferred back to the United States in the spring of 1945. Um, but before very much of his allotted recuperation period um, it has elapsed, um, he receives these surprise orders to the Pentagon. He's not too happy about that. Um, and he's initially given a, um, a staff job. Um, and then a role within the G2, the Military Intelligence Division, um, and finally kind of becomes involved in communications intelligence and learning about the various facets of that work, um, all with the underlying intention that he will essentially put the Air Force in the business um, of communications intelligence. Keep in mind that at this point, uh, the Air Force itself doesn't exist yet. It's still part of the U.S. Army. So these preparations are being made against the day that um, the Air Force does, in fact, become an independent service. Um, and Clocko is is ultimately the person responsible for doing the legwork, you know, laying the laying the, the foundation uh, for organizing and creating the group um, that will eventually become uh, the Air Force Security Service. So, yeah, just absolutely fascinating character and, and, a, and a great story. Yeah, so now we get into some of the big events of the Cold War and what role the security service played during them. And probably one of the first ones was the Korean War, because there was a lot of air combat, especially in Big Alley up in uh, up in uh, the border of North Korea and China, where at first the Soviet pilots were there fighting the Americans, and then later they trained Chinese and North Koreans to fight. But what role did the security service uh, play in the Korean War, especially with some of that air combat that I just meant briefly uh, summarized. Yeah, so it's, it, yeah, as we briefly mentioned already, Korea is really the the first sort of real-world test of of the uh, security service and, and of the Air Force at large um, following World War II. Um, and uh, as we've mentioned already, the Air Force and the security service both at this point had uh, a very strong emphasis towards the strategic threat. They were not necessarily thinking about uh, fighting another conventional war um, in Korea. And so there's a, a, a period of chaotic uh, kind of uh, just just everything goes haywire in, the, in those early years, those early months of, of the Korean conflict as the, the security service struggles to get assets in place. They have to train up Korean linguists because they're just really at this point not prepared for for a, a conflict in Korea. Where I think the success stories really come from is kind of what you mentioned, the, the tactical picture. Um, the security service really gets involved in supporting uh, the tactical air operations um, and uh, sets up a really innovative 
uh, way of, of doing that where they're able to kind of move into uh, difficult um, areas with, with vans and portable equipment, um, set up a, a line to uh, tactical air control, um, and where they're able to take the, the information that they uh, get from intercepts um, and relay that to tactical air control, and which then in turn um, is relayed to, to the uh, fighter pilots on the line. Um, and the, the pilots themselves, they may not necessarily know and, and certainly probably didn't know where the information was coming from. Uh, but in a sense, their, their radar got a whole lot better. Um, and they were they were able to improve the kill ratio over the over the MiGs and, and kind of uh, turn turn the tide there. So that's that's where the security service really played an important role um, after after that initial period of, of adjustment and, and having to, to put together an effective um, operation. The the tactical picture is, is really where they uh, uh, a good success story and then the other major or the next uh, major area that the security service played in was the cuban missile crisis which had both tactical and especially strategic uh, implications so what was the role that they played in the in the cuban missile crisis because i'm sure they played a huge role yeah, they they did, and I think that's that's where um, initial uh, uh, more more and more uh, documents will will hopefully be declassified and, and give us a little bit better picture about what all went down during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But but yeah, the, the way I talk about it is is the the fifties were really a, a period of of expansion for the security service, and then the sixties were a period of of maturation. Um, and by the time of the the Cuban Missile Crisis and by the time of of Vietnam, the security service had gotten a lot better at what it called crisis response. So putting together uh, units that were essentially, they called them emergency reaction units. These these units that were designed to uh, be portable, to be mobile, to get into uh, difficult areas, uh, difficult terrain, and set up an effective uh, intercept operation. Um, and uh, one of these uh, one of these units was deployed to Florida um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and and really uh, was instrumental in setting up um, an effective operation that that kept uh, leaders, policymakers informed on on uh, the movements of uh, opposing forces and and really what was going on in 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 in, in Cuba and around Cuba, um, and kind of helping to navigate uh, that challenge. Um, another one of these uh, uh, units was deployed to Southeast Asia. Um, and I think we can talk about that a little bit more with the, the, the early years of, of American involvement in Southeast Asia, which, again, I think um, starts a lot earlier than, than some people might think, um, but uh, initially is is established to to get more information on the on the Chinese Chinese Air Force, um, because the the security service operations pr- flights around the periphery um, of China, kind of based in Japan and the Philippines, um, are not picking up everything that they they feel they need to. Um, and so they're starting to look towards Western China and locations in that area that uh, can set up a, a more effective intercept operation. Yeah, you just mentioned uh, our involvement with uh, Vietnam got earlier than most people realize. Actually, in some ways, it kind of bleeds into the end of World War II, where we had OSS agents cooperating with Ho Chi Minh. So that's kind of the origins. And then there's also the French, uh, the French Indochina War, where we're trying to give support to the French. And then afterwards, then we start sending advisors. And it's not until the mid-60s that we start getting more directly involved. But it's, you know, it happens in different ways. Then it kind of originates from World War II. So it is kind of interesting. And also a little interesting how intelligence plays a role in that. But, uh, yeah, during the actual Vietnam War, the mid-60s, when we get more directly involved, what role did the security services uh, play in 
in that conflict. Yeah, so so as indications that um, something might happen um, in, in Southeast Asia and in Vietnam, the, the security service really um, was geared towards supporting um, and, and being prepared for the moment when an air war might break out, uh, which of course it did. And so then in Vietnam, we kind of again see the, the tactical success like we saw in Korea, where the security service is able to to provide really, really key support um, to to fighters um, who, are, who are engaging uh, opposing forces over over Vietnam um, and, and in the area. Um, again, related to kind of expanding over and above what radar is able to provide and, and really um, showing where, where the, the opposing fighters are coming from, uh, where they're going to be, uh, the patterns, locations, things like that. Um, Operation Bolo, which, of course, is a, a very famous um, engagement uh, your, your listeners will be familiar with. Uh, the security service plays a key role in, in not only the operational aspect, but also the deception that was involved with, with that campaign. Um, kind of masking the uh, identity of of the fighters and the aircraft that were involved, so that the uh, they would uh, not appear um, as as fighters to to opposing forces, um, and and then transmitting, kind of providing mega alerts to fighters on the line to to uh, provide again over and above what their what their radar could could uh, provide, and uh, not only where they were in kind of the operational sense, but uh, the bases they came from, um, the, the times that they launched and, and all that, that kind of information to provide a better picture to the to the uh, American fighters who were um, engaging those those opposing forces. So it's, it's again, a, a matter of um, a tactical, tactical support. And I think we also see when it comes to, to Vietnam and kind of how the security service operated, a real balancing act between what was seen as kind of the operational priorities, what the Air Force needed tactically um, on the ground, but then also the the national level priorities that were at, at this point in time being directed by the NSA um, and those kinds of questions. So the, the security service really um, is engaged in, in kind of balancing uh, those those priorities to, to hopefully provide a, a com- complete picture to everyone involved. Now, were they uh, involved at all with the uh, bombing campaigns of North Vietnam, like providing intelligence to the Air Force, like where to go and what what are the missile defense? Yeah, so that that's where I think we see a, a maybe a little bit of a, of a limitation of the sources. The sources that I've seen really don't get into the bombing campaigns. If I had to make an educated guess, I would say that they're engaged in much the same kind of thing, providing information about uh, where the targets are, where the, the enemy forces are, and, and where they may be coming from, and things like that. Um, but but that's I think a, a limitation of, at least of the sources that may be declassified, or at least what I've seen uh, doesn't really get into the bombing campaigns. To put it another way, yes, they did, but it's classified. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a very fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, what is the legacy of this era of Air Force intelligence? And obviously the Air Force today still has its own intelligence yeah. uh, services. But, of course, you focused on the early Cold War period because, of, as you said, part of the sources are more available. But what is kind of the legacy that we know of or what we can speak of? Yeah, I think it's, it's it's a good question. I think um, the the simple, the straightforward answer to that question is obviously the the organizational descendant, kind of the 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 lineage of the security service extends to um, Air Force's cyber, uh, which is an operation today. Uh, you can kind of trace the the organization through the the eighties, the nineties, as as the command, the units were were changed names or reorganized in in various different ways. Um, so organizationally, there's a clear line uh, from the security service to to uh, what's being done today. 
Um, I think the lessons, if, if there are, you know, when we talk about lessons and legacy and kind of what um, the relevance of this history is for, for modern leaders, modern policymakers, I think has to do with um, the the communication um, and the, the coordination between intelligence agencies and how crucial that really is um, and 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 the, the lessons of what uh, can happen when rivalry and lack of communication lack of coordination is allowed to kind of take over um, and I think that that's a, that's an important lesson of the book um, again having having more of an organizational uh, approach as opposed to an operational pro- uh, approach and, and, and telling that larger story. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a self-diagnosed big picture person. And so kind of looking at that uh, from the 30,000 foot level and kind of being able to extract uh, some of those lessons and what it might mean for, for our, our folks uh, doing, doing these kinds of operations today, I think is, is an important thing to keep in mind. Yeah. That's actually one of the interesting things about intelligence history is that it does connect very much so with the the big picture and you can just connect so many different things even in your book i mean you talk a lot about like how the air force was created but you also talk about like the geopolitics of the early cold war and like what is the air force trying to respond to why it needs its independence so it's all interconnected uh do you have any further thoughts on on that well, yeah, I, th- I think it's, you know, you pull one thread and, and you're going to get the whole ball of yarn, right? So I think that this book is is uh, hopefully a, a, a good way for, for folks who may be interested in one aspect or, or another to kind of get a sense of how all of these things uh, worked well together and really how the security service is a, a really interesting piece of this this larger, you know, complex puzzle that, that really kind of characterizes the, uh, the transition from World War II into the Cold War and then kind of the philosophy and the decision and the rationales that support supported um, uh, decision-making uh, of the you know, American government military, but also the U.S. Air Force uh, throughout the, the early years of the Cold War. Um, so it's uh, if, if any of that is, is interesting uh, to anyone out there, then I encourage you to pick up a copy, and, and uh, hopefully it's uh, uh, valuable. Uh, this will be admittedly a lighthearted question, but from the title, I couldn't help but think, oh, is he trying to play on the recent success of Top Gun Maverick? And... I even had to explain to friends and family, like, oh, who, are you, what are you, what's your next interview? It's like, well, it's this true story behind that, but it's the Air Force, not the Navy. So right. my, que- my question is, my lighthearted question is, do you, do you get asked that? at all or do you people make that connection at all to you they, they do I, I have been asked that question um in reality it's it's not a reference to to top gun i, I the the title um goes back to my undergrad days and I, I wanted to i thought it was a good title i wanted to save it for uh for the book and it really kind of gets to the attitude um the of, of the security service personnel of the air force at large kind of um in the the late 40s and early 1950s um but also the the perception um, that the Army and other executive branch uh, organizations kind of viewed uh, the security service and the Air Force um, kind of as these um, as these mavericks. They were kind of out out, out to uh, uh, protect their own independence and, and, and protect their own priorities. And I think um, we see that on both sides, right? We see it from, from the folks who are kind of looking at the Air Force uh, from the outside, but we also see it on the behavior of, of Air Force personnel themselves and, and what they're trying to do. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, I'll, I'll definitely cop- uh, capitalize on the uh, the Google search, you know, the search search engine optimization of, of, of the uh, popularity of that, but uh, it's it's not a it's not a Top Gun reference. <laughs> yeah, my one friend said, yeah, you know, probably the Air Force has its own little top pilot program, and it's probably even better. But you know, the Navy gets uh, the credit because of the movie. <laughs> uh, uh, do you have any uh, final thoughts? Uh, maybe touch on anything in the book that we weren't able to get to in the discussion. 
Well, like I said, I think this is uh, uh, it's, it's the very beginning. Um, there, there, this this field is, is really wide open for research. I mean, as I pointed out, I mean, just has the the security service had not been written about and has has not uh, until this point had a had a history kind of dedicated dedicated to it. The the Army Security Agency, the Naval Security Group as well, are in the same position. And so I think as as we uh, hopefully continue to see more and more declassification and, and more and more records become available, then we can we can begin to tell the story of these organizations that. Um, in, in large part are missing from the pages of history and are kind of overshadowed by um, organizations um, and intelligence agencies that kind of have a, a more um, uh, more popular uh, profile, uh, right? The NSA, the CIA, but but the kind of the telling the story of those larger organizations um, is not the whole story. Um, and so I think it's incredibly valuable to, valuable to take a take a step back and, and look at these other organizations that play key roles um, in how the the United States and and uh, and the, the, the government, the military really um, transitioned from World War II into the Cold War and kind of the, the steps that they took to um, navigate that conflict. Well, we always like to end our uh, interviews by asking our guests, uh, what are you working on now? So yeah, I think you know it's a it's a occupational hazard, right? For for historians, there's there's, there's always too many ideas, too many projects. Uh, but one of the next things I'm hoping to work on is going to uh, zoom out again a, a little bit and, and take a look at um, communications intelligence and kind of its relationship with uh, modern warfare. Um, what the what the impact there might be. Um, so I'm just kind of nibbling around the edges of that project at the moment and, and getting. You're laying some of the foundational work, um, but uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of irons in the fire. I think uh, it's as as a first book, uh, it's I, I found the process incredibly addicting, and so I'm looking forward to to continue to to put out more projects. Well, when you finish some of that research and get it published, uh, maybe we can have you back on the podcast. Absolutely, love to. Uh, Philip C. Shackelford, uh, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.